It's been a full 20 years since 9-11. What have we learned? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Anniversaries provide moments to step out of the daily routine and reflect on where we are and how we got there. Our guest today, Jordan Michael Smith, in an article in The New Republic, asks, 20 years after 9-11, are we any smarter? Are foreign policy-wise people responded to the September 11th terrorist attacks by embracing belligerence? What, if anything, have they learned? While the effects of the so-called Patriot Act on our domestic civil liberties have been and remain significant, we're going to focus today on where we are in terms of foreign and military policy two decades after the towers fell. What has the policy of endless war gotten us? The global war on terrorists. Has it worked? As our guest asks, in 2021, what is the status of, quote, the urge to intervene in places of peripheral concern to U.S. interests to overreact to threats, to overutilize military force in dealing with terrorists and others? One thing is for sure, as has been observed, we have developed a phenomenal killing machine. To what end? And our guest observes Quote, our many failures these past 20 years have not led to a widespread rethinking of America's foreign policy assumptions. And what's worse, the toll from that war on terrorism continues to take on American power, prestige, and domestic cohesion, makes it significantly harder to compete with China, end of quote. There is a lot to talk about on this 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Jordan Michael Smith, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Glad to be here with you, Perk. Jordan Michael Smith is an award-winning journalist, ghostwriter, and speechwriter. He's the author of the best-selling Kindle single, Humanity, How Jimmy Carter Lost an Election and Transformed the Post-Presidency. Sounds rather interesting. And he collaborated on two nonfiction books to be published in 2022. He's a former speechwriter for New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, who I noticed thinking about running for governor of New York, and Comptroller Scott Stringer and a former communications consultant at the United Nations. His writing has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Esquire, BBC, and MSNBC. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And tell us, please, about how the initial fear and anger of the weeks and months following 9-11 impacted the foreign policy establishment. Well, there was a tremendous amount of shock, anger, and fear running through all uh, of the United States at that time. There was a little less surprise among uh, the Bush administration um, and and the and the Clinton administration, which uh, had just. Uh, expired the previous year. Uh, obviously, officials in, in counterterrorism knew that something like this could happen, knew something like 9-11 could happen. And certainly there have been warnings that al-Qaeda was trying to do something like this. But of course, that's very different than an actual attack occurring. And uh, there, there is very much a surreal aspect of it. 
that occurred initially. And the Bush administration, it had done a pretty poor job up to that point of taking al-Qaeda seriously. They were focused on state threats, uh, threats, overblown mm-hmm. threats from Iran and Iraq, uh, as well as North Korea, primarily. And so they didn't pay a, a, enough attention to it, uh, to terrorism. And all of a sudden, the Bush administration sort of scrambled to figure out what might be an approach. And, you know, in the administration's defense, uh, there was no exact playbook here because nothing like this had occurred before to the United States or really uh, anywhere else on this level. Um, and so... You know, on top of that, there there was a great fear, and I think this has been forgotten. There was a great fear that there were going to be more attacks right. in the sub- subsequent days and weeks, and uh, this was a, a very real concern. The uh, in the administration really didn't know what Al Qaeda was thinking, if there was going to be a Plan B, and 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 what might happen. And so um, now, so what happened was the ad- administration basically reached for uh, a playbook that uh, some conservatives had been developing for uh-huh. uh, more than a decade. And, and this was really about U.S. predominance in the world and uh, overthrowing so-called rogue states uh, in Iraq and in Iran and elsewhere and uh, really reshaping the Middle East um, to, to prevent uh, any challengers from the United States or its allies uh, and and making sure the United States remained uh, unchallenged throughout the world, and so that and really um, that was the Bush administration locked into that, and to a remarkable degree, the public, uh, Democrats, uh, and the entire foreign policy uh, foreign policy establishment really fell in line. Uh, very quickly, and any dissenters uh, throughout 2001 and 2002 were really, really brushed aside and 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 deemed unpatriotic, yeah. uh, deemed weak, uh, stupid, um, uh, cowardly, that sort of thing. And so, for for a good year and a half, there really wasn't any uh, dissent uh, t- to a large degree. That's for sure. And and the, the anti-war community, which had been around for quite some time in these United States, uh, felt the effects of that. And, and there was a, a real atmosphere of fear of speaking out against it, of saying anything. And you talk about how we knew something was coming, which reminds us of Pearl Harbor. And right. this was a shock not seen since Pearl Harbor, where once again, we knew something was going to happen because, I mean, Japan had been backed into a corner. They were going to do something that, of course, was a state player, not a non-state player. The war initiated in response to 9-11 provided exhilaration after the massive upset throughout all of America. You cite British historian Michael Howard, who warned of what he called a war psychosis, and he warned of that in late 2001. What did he mean, and and what were the effects of this war psychosis on policy choices? Do you think? Well, it, it, it's it's terrific that you mentioned Pearl Harbor, and and you know Japan attacked the United States, and so the United States had a clear enemy, and it was clear what the United States could do in response, which was to uh, defeat 
Japan in a war, yeah. and uh, and if it wanted to, it could overthrow the government, uh, which is exactly what happened. And then, of course, uh, the, the United States began an occupation of Japan. Well, uh, you know, when you're fighting a, a group of terrorists uh, who operate across the globe and have no sizable military, uh, it's very difficult to to focus the public's attention in a dramatic way. And the Bush administration made a very, very fateful decision to declare war. And the problem with with declaring that, as Michael Howard said, is that, um, you know, you're in a war, you're expected to have a clear enemy. You're expected to have a clear way to fight. And there's a there's a declared endpoint. Um, the United States w- was very sure when the war on Japan ended. Right. Well, when by by declaring uh, a war against terrorism, Bush was basically declaring a war without end, right. a war without clear enemies, and and without really uh, going into specifics about what the best ways were to fight this war, and. Uh, Basically, um, you know, Michael Howard was warning that something like this, something like the 9-11 attack, while horrible, was really not dealt with best by the military. The the United States military is excellent at specific things, uh, particularly destroying foreign armies um, and blowing things up. But it's not particularly good at building functional states. Mm in other places or in solving political problems uh, or, or for that matter, doing things that are, are are better done by police um, and intelligence officials. And by relying so heavily on the military, um, we, we basically geared the United States public up for uh, military action against, against states that, didn't have very much to do with the actual 9-11 attackers. And, uh, you know, they, they say when you have a, a hammer, everything looks like right. a nail. And but by relying on the United States military, uh, it, it you know, it did what what it could do. It, 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 it invaded several countries yeah. and it, um, it it fought counterterrorism actions in, in several others. But, um, you know, those were of of minimal effectiveness. And in some places they were actually counterproductive to the war against uh, Al Qaeda, which is really what should have been declared Uh, just a very specific campaign against, against Al Qaeda. But, but the attacks seemed so grandiose and the Bush administration and the foreign policy establishment interpreted them as basically a a world war. And of course, uh, when you're fighting a world war, you know, rounding up some terrorists, putting them in in handcuffs and and in prison, um, putting them on trial, it doesn't seem like a very (laughs) satisfying answer. And, um, you know, compared to taking on, you know, massive countries like like Germany and Japan. And so this is what Michael Howard was, was warning against is just you're creating a public appetite for revenge mm. that you're really not going to be able to satisfy. Mm. Yeah, revenge is rarely uh, satisfactory and rarely, if ever, achieves what one is uh, doing revenge on. We've had so many wars that uh oh well you do this well we're going to do that i mean you look at uh israel and palestine one after the other after just constantly doing that and you know i remember at the time anybody who was around then will never forget where we were there was 
enormous global solidarity with the United States after the attacks. And there was a way to build on that, perhaps. What what could have been, do you think? What happened to that global solidarity? What do we blow? Well, if the United if the United States had far sighted far sighted leaders, it, it could have been uh, something that really united the international community to isolate uh, jihadists who who are, are are really the problem. And the United because Russia has a, its own problem with jihadists, and and the China also has its own concerns. Uh, in addition to countries in Europe, uh, which have faced problems from the same threat and of course the same with the middle east and so um and by the way uh so did iraq and iran also uh face their own threats from jihadists and so the united states really could have have um put together a a truly international coalition to uh really invest in the resources uh such as policing and um uh stabilizing financial markets and making sure that uh, markets were more transparent so funds were not going to jihadists. Um, and at the same time, it could have addressed some of the root causes of of uh, terrorism. Yes. Uh, which, you know, have in many places, uh, in many cases, had their uh, failure in um, repressive governments in the Middle East and in, in failed states in the Middle East. And so um, had, the, had the United States done that, those things instead of, you know, declaring a war on terrorism and, and focusing on, on governments that uh, weren't actually responsible for the attacks, uh, we all would have been better off. The United States would have lost uh, far less money. Uh, oh, yeah. a, a lot more of our service members would still be alive. And, yes. of course, um, we, we, we would have much more support in the international community than we do today. You know, the past 20 years of foreign policy is really uh, is really self um, is really these self-imposed failures and on these unforced errors by the United States uh, to to really just squander its its enormous mm. power th- that it had on September 10th, 2001, and it's just been blunder after blunder after blunder. And uh, there really was a different way to do things. And uh, the Bush administration at that time had so much political capital, too. I mean, um, you know, the, the you know, the, the, the public was going to be behind the Bush administration, whatever they chose. Yes. And, if the, and if the administration had had chosen wisely, uh, it, it, it could have yeah. had significant effects on where we are today. Looking from a vantage point of 20 years is is one thing. You know, it, it, 2020 is, is hindsight, of course. But there were voices at the time calling for alternatives to the option taken, the global war on terror. What did John Mearsheimer, writing the New York Times in November 2001, right after the attack, what did he advocate? And what was that road which was not taken? Sure. So John Mearsheimer is a political scientist at the University of Chicago. And, uh, you know, he's very much a mainstream figure. Uh, He's not radical in the sense of attending anti-war marches. And, uh, you know, uh, he's not a hippie. He's just a a professor who has uh, advised the United States uh, military and government uh, repeatedly. And he warned in in November 2001 that 
um, after uh, some signature strikes against Al Qaeda, the military should not be used in Afghanistan or anywhere else because it would be counterproductive by creating vacuums of power and, and creating more instability and, and upheaval in Afghanistan. And he, he warned against sending troops to Afghanistan. And, and this is in November 2001. Yeah. And he, he said that, that the United States should rely on uh counterintelligence and policing actions with with selective uh carefully targeted uh, minimal uh strikes w- w- when uh our, our intelligence was really solid and um he he very much argued that uh Afghanistan was a uh was a very a country without a strong central government and um it had never been a, a developed country and so uh, we, it, the idea that we were going to, to take uh, what is very much a, a poor country with weak borders and uh, without a strong government and, and, and turn it into a stable state uh, was fantasy. Yes. And, and, and he said this very early on wow. uh, in the fall of 2001. And uh, and nobody listened. Uh, people just I mean, it was just completely ignored. Wow. And it's really w- w- one of the most uh, prescient op-eds of the past decades. And uh, there were people like him and Michael Howard. And again, these are very much mainstream, respected establishment figures mm-hmm. who, um, who who were just, you know, pretty much marginalized in, in the rush and the Bush administration's rush to uh, use the military to overthrow the Taliban. And then they didn't think that far ahead after that. Then they just. <laughs> They quickly turned to Iran. Uh, sorry, to Iraq. Yes, and uh, uh, we know all. We all know how that went. Oh my goodness! And, for for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and here we are, twenty years after nine eleven, and we're speaking with Jordan Michael Smith, who wrote in an article in the New Republic, twenty years after nine eleven. Are we any smarter? And uh, my, uh, is it possible? that very soon after Bush's initial attack on Afghanistan, that victory could have been declared and that an important off-ramp was missed right at that time. Yes, and and there was a a high-ranking CIA officer named Paul Piller, uh, who I interviewed for for my article, who, who said exactly that, who uh, he, he, like many people, uh, supported the initial invasion of Afghanistan. But um, he, he, he recognizes that after uh, initially going in and overthrowing the Taliban, you know, the United States could have uh, could have done what we're doing right now. Uh, 20 years ago and, and just said, okay, uh, we're, you know, we're leaving. We've done the best that we can do. And if Al Qaeda comes back, we'll be back. But, um, you know, we cannot build a functioning state in Afghanistan. That is, that is for Afghans to do. Uh, and, and it's not looking like they're going to have an easy time doing it either. Right. And so the United States uh, really could have, have declared victory and said, you know, we're really only fighting Al Qaeda and uh, and any allies that it may have, um, we're not out to defeat governments that uh, you know. We we know, for example, that much of much of the uh, 9/11 attacks, many of the attackers trained in Florida. Yeah. 
out of flight school and they trained in Germany. And, you know, there was no talk of overthrowing yeah. the governments there because it would have been ridiculous. Uh, and, and a similar thing was in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, the Taliban certainly hosted Al Qaeda, but but, but it, they had no advance warning of the attacks. And so, um, you know, right now th- there's talk of allying with the Taliban yes. against Al Qaeda. And it's just unbelievable. I mean, this is what exactly what we could have done in the fall of 2011. And everyone, we could have saved ourselves and the world uh, a tremendous amount of misery. And uh, and uh, it's really unfortunate that the United States has had to l- learn from its failures uh, and, and instead of listening to people like Paul Pillar, John Mearsheimer, and, and Michael Howard, who, who said that exactly this type of thing would happen. Yeah, it was seen at the time, and that's really important, that it could be seen at the time. It's not just, you know, looking from 20 years out. They saw it at the time, but were not right. uh, uh, paid attention to. And you know that the, the price tag of all this is staggering. Let's talk some numbers here. Give, give listeners some detail, please, in terms of lives and treasure. Sure. So, um, you know, the... There's upwards, I, I think, of, of 5,000 service members who have died uh, in all the wars that the United States has fought since 9-11. So that means, um, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq. But, of course, uh, we're talking um, other places as well, like Somalia, Libya, um, all these countries that are sort of uh, part of, of our open-ended war on terrorism. And um, several times that number of service members have died by suicide. That's which is something uh, oh, that horrible, yeah. I, people don't talk about so much. We, they, they tend to consider only um, members who have died actually in combat or or in friendly fire. But um, of course, uh, you know, for our our brave men and women in uniform who who, who perform these acts of service um, and, and 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 complete these deeds, they can have trauma for for many many yes. years and, and yes. tragically yes. many of them uh choose to take their own lives and then of course um we're talking about trillions of dollars that the united states has spent um on the military uh in uh trying to build functioning states in afghanistan and uh in iraq and uh and again you know this is all to very little success yeah. it would be one thing if the united states spent a lot of money and got a, a good return on its investment uh but but uh not only has that not been the case in some cases we're we're, we're worse off than we were at oh, september yeah. uh, 12 2001 uh we have far less international solidarity uh, our our international prestige has plummeted. Um, we have we're more isolated than ever, and um, and the, the public's will has uh, has to 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 do anything um, has really dwindled. And so um, you know all these it's just been an enormous enormous cost that the United States has paid, and, and in most cases it's inflicted on itself. We got to talk a little, you know, history, how we got here, you know, pre uh, 9 11 2001. Jimmy Carter's, going way back, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Big New Brzezinski, advocated for American intervention in Afghanistan as a way to get at the Soviet Union. They had their uh, government there. The Cold War was ideal for the military-industrial complex to flex its muscle and to get a lot of money from we, the taxpayers. 
Then the Cold War ended. As you know, suddenly the U.S. found itself devoid of an enemy. In 1991, then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, joked, joked, but there was some truth to this. He said, I'm running out of demons. I'm running out of villains. And you say, instead of reducing capabilities and ambitions commensurate with an unprecedentedly secure environment, Powell approved a strategy that envisioned enlarging U.S. ambitions. Again, that was back in 1991. Then in 1992, as you point out, Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney, then Secretary of Defense, gave Powell a suggestion not to protect our republic, but to maintain the country's supremacy and domination. After the Cold War, there was a sense of triumphalism. How significant do you think that was in America's post-9-11 foreign policy? Triumphalism. Triumphalism is is really uh, vital to understanding our failures of the past 20 years. The 1990s, uh, you know, the seeds for for the post-9-11 failures uh, were were really planted in the 1990s because the end of the Soviet Union left uh, many people in the foreign policy establishment with the idea that um, the United States knew best, uh, knew what to do best in the world. We were smarter than other countries. We were obviously more powerful, but the idea that this gave us more wisdom and um, and really that the, basically that we could do anything that we wanted to if we put our minds to it. And, and everything that uh, we wanted to, we could make happen if we just had enough will. And um, so in, in, in the 1990s, there was a real opportunity during the Clinton administration and the end of the Bush administration to start cutting the defense budget, which, uh, which has you know, been massive since uh, 1950. And it was a real opportunity. The the Soviet Union, which the the, the modern national security state was right. built to fight, had evaporated, right. dissolved. So, you know, you'd think, OK, well, maybe it's time to roll back the national security state. And, and to be fair, that was done to a small degree, but nowhere near to the level that it could and should have been done because the temptation for members of the foreign policy establishment to try and reshape the world, to try and extend U.S. power was was too great. And uh, the public has never been as supportive of that sort of thing as the national security establishment has been. But um, they're the ones who control the purse strings. And um, and the public doesn't really pay attention to the details of, of, of budgets and that sort of thing. And um, so, you know, uh, the United States national uh, a security establishment mm-hmm. really expanded its ambitions. And so, um, you know, for example, after fighting the Gulf War, uh, the United States kept troops in Saudi Arabia. And this was, uh, you know, this was something that Osama bin Laden took huge offense to. He thought it was sacred land. And uh, in his list of grievances with the United States, uh, keeping troops in Saudi Arabia was number one, always on the list. And that was the sort of thing that happened because the United States did not really consider that uh, some of the actions that it could take with its power would have any type of negative effects. Or if they did have negative effects, they were certainly um, something that we could counter mm-hmm. uh, and, and more like a fly that we could swat away. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, there are a number of actions that the United States took, like expanding NATO, uh, even though NATO was was built to 
uh, to counter the Soviet Union and its allies. And, um, and instead of, you know, actually reducing or eliminating NATO, we expanded it, even though we had arguably, and the historians still debate this, even though we had told the Soviet Union as it was dissolving, we told Gorbachev that, in right. fact, we, we, we won't expand NATO. And so we did a number of things that basically showed that we could do whatever we wanted and we would do whatever we wanted. Hmm. And and not surprisingly, uh, Russia and and uh, other people, including uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, took exception to that. <laughs> Yes, they did. It's amazing how, you know, people don't like being, uh, you know, under the thumb of some uh, powerful gorilla beating its chest, you know, and imagine people like to run their own countries. That's just so hard to believe. And it's, you know, getting to the root causes of of why there were these attacks is not nearly as profitable for the military industrial complex so they don't they don't tend to do that and that's you know as you say people don't pay that much attention to the money aspect but it is you know money as bob dylan said money doesn't uh, talk it swears and mm -hmm. you know there haven't been any major attacks since then and there's you know discussion about that my recollection is that 20 years ago, there was a real lack of cooperation between intelligence agencies and law enforcement. You say that's been addressed. Is that part of the reason there have been no mass casualty terrorist attacks on U.S. soil since 9-11? Are there convincing arguments that the militaristic approach has indeed worked? Well, there are certainly uh, people who make this claim uh, in, in foreign affairs Recently, a, a pair of scholars who I, who I quote um, in my article, Michael O'Hanlon and Hal Brands, they say, you know, the United States has made some mistakes in the past 20 years, but the proof has, is in the pudding. And the United States has not had an attack since. And, and therefore, it shows that, OK, we've done we've done pretty good, even as we've made some mistakes. Um, in my view, this sort of. Uh, this sort of gives the establishment far too much credit. I mean, th there were no terrorist attacks, no major uh, attacks, uh, acts of terrorism by jihadists in the 1990s either. But yeah. um, so uh, so, it, you know, it isn't that surprising. It was extremely difficult for Al Qaeda to pull 9-11 off for a variety of reasons. Watch the United States tighten up its borders. Once it, it, it improved is its intelligence, what, once it has uh, improved its information sharing between the FBI and the CIA and, and local police, in my view, that's 75 percent of the work right there. In addition, on top of that, um, the United States uh, set up uh, protocols to defeat money laundering, to work with its its partners in, in Europe and allies to make sure that uh, banks were, were keeping track of this sort of thing. And when you combine that with, with uh, you know, signature strikes uh, on al-Qaeda compounds in Afghanistan or anywhere else, you're really reducing al-Qaeda's ability to pull off an attack, which was always difficult. You're really reducing it to almost nil. Yeah. And um, and so, that, you know, you don't need to overthrow the Taliban for that. You don't need to try and overthrow Saddam Hussein, uh, you know, or, or create an axis of evil mm -hmm. to accomplish those ends. Mm -hmm. And in fact, th those things are counterproductive because um, Saddam Hussein uh, 
you know, he was unlikely to be our ally since we right. fought in a war with him. But, you know, he certainly was uh, not really liked by jihadists and he was very worried about them. And um, and the same was true then and is still true of the Iranian government. So the United States really could, instead of isolating um, its foes and, and threatening them and in some cases invading them, it could have tried to co-opt them. Mm. And, you know, th- th- this is an approach that the United States, unfortunately, uh, just does not take nearly often enough. The, uh, Barack Obama, to his credit, tried to do it, to you know, in Iran and Cuba. Uh, but it was tremendously difficult for him, and Donald Trump uh, reversed both both of those things. Yeah, politics certainly plays a big part of it. And I, I was remembering, as you were talking, back in 1993, there was an attack on the World Trade Center in the basement. They I, Clearly, they figured that they would, you know, undo the supports, the foundation, and make it fall then. And I remember saying to uh, my dad, actually, at the time, they're going to try this again. And sure enough, they did with airplanes. It wasn't easy. They got training in Florida, but they certainly did it. And there was one guest on this show uh, who, who said we have to think with history. And it seems like we never, ever do. And America's war in Afghanistan, talk about history, is often compared to our war in Vietnam. And Lyndon Johnson continued the war in part because... He refused to be the first president to lose a war. So, untold thousands of lives and limbs were lost as a result. And, of course, now we're doing business with Vietnam. Along similar lines, you quote Bill Clinton, quote, When people are insecure, they'd rather have someone who is strong and wrong than someone who's weak and right. Now, that may be good politics, but to me, it seems like a lousy foreign policy. Has that attitude dominated the Democratic Party ever since? We know about Republicans, but what about the Democrats? How powerful is such, you know, politically short-term reasoning? I think it's certainly uh, a powerful, has a powerful role in the Democratic Party. I don't think, you know, it's the only, uh, the only mentality at play in the Democratic Party. I think, uh, unlike in the Republican Party, the Democratic Party has various factions. And while that's certainly Bill Clinton's view is certainly one of them, there are also uh, others um, that are more skeptical of the use of force. And and President Obama was, was very mindful of that. Uh, and as we're seeing, Joe Biden, um, you know, is really willing to buck the foreign policy establishment and it, willing to leave Afghanistan. And uh, even though over the, you know, uh, the foreign policy establishment says this has evaporated American credibility and all, all the things that, that they were uh, very predictably going to say. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, pre- uh, President Biden ha- has learned some some lessons. And uh, I think it's really crucial that he was Obama's vice president when Obama added troops. Uh, in his first years as president, and uh, it, it did no good. It, it just again got more American service members killed, and um, and President Biden, to his credit, uh, refused to, to be another president to kick the can down the road, uh, so yes. that the, the next president would have to do this. So, um, you know, while, while Bill Clinton's cynical view, uh, you know, does certainly have a role in the Democratic Party, it really isn't the only one. That's for sure. As uh, as uh, Will Rogers said, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. 
Right. For, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Here we are at 20 years after 9-11. We're speaking with Jordan Michael Smith, who's written an article in The New Republic, 20 years after 9-11, Are We Any Smarter? And talk about Democrats. Your article reminds us, though it's mainly forgotten, that Senators Ted Kennedy and Russ Feingold and 21 other senators voted against authorizing Bush to use force against Iraq. I wonder, in, in Washington, under that big dome, where is that backbone today? Are there signs it's still with us in Congress, or are they, have they been cowed uh, so powerfully? Well, I think, um, you know, one thing I try to ask in my article is if, God forbid, there were another uh, 9-11 type attack, would the United States make the same mistakes uh, that it made? Right. Would it rush to declare war on, on foreign governments and, and, and try to build states and distant lands? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think that people like Joe Biden have learned some things and uh, they, they see how difficult it is to even, you know, keep democracy alive here and, and, and have a functioning uh, state in the United States, uh, let alone somewhere else. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure uh, that the United States would make the same mistakes. On the other hand, um, you know, as we're seeing in, uh, in, in Congress in response to President Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's just so easy to imagine that the United States military has the power to be able to make magic happen. Uh, and, and the United States is, is so powerful and the, the military is so large, the idea that it can basically do anything is really tempting for, for members of Congress. And, um, and, and so I think that uh, it, it, it would be a real, real nasty battle in Congress uh, where some people would carry on the torch that that Senators Kennedy and Feingold bravely lit and um, and, and would say, no, OK, we're not going to go along with uh, another war that's likely to end in failure. But, but, but there would certainly be many others who I think, uh, you know, would just be. Uh, more than happy to to, to vote yes and and uh, allow uh, yet another president to uh, invade a country. And looking tough, boy, people like looking tough. And it seems like these days, you know, it's so much more simple. And to, to expect some magic, you know, for example, with uh, with COVID, uh, a lot of the Trump people, you know, they didn't believe the science, the the uh, the research. They just wanted, you know, just. Something simple. Got to have something simple. And there's nothing simpler than, you know, a, a hammer finding nails all over the place and doing that. It doesn't work. And a lot of people die. And it doesn't make increase our national security. And talk about, you know, effective policy for, for improving our actual national security. Obama's foreign policy will be forever remembered for his hundreds, hundreds of drone strikes. All, that was sort of his angle on the war on terror after sending in, uh, you know, another 30,000 troops in, in uh, was it 2009, I think it was. Uh, do we know the number of casualties resulting from the drone strikes and how well that strategy worked on deterring terrorist attacks and recruitment by the al-Qaeda's of the world? 
Well, in fact, we don't know the exact amount right. of casualties that the United States has inflicted because the Pentagon doesn't count them. Uh, the Pentagon counts the number of U.S. service members, uh, uh, but, but it will not count the number of uh, civilians uh, or foreign combatants that it kills, which shows you how seriously they take the lives of people uh, in other countries. And, of course, uh, you know, that type of mentality um, is, is, is awful when we're trying to win hearts and minds in, in foreign countries. Um, and so uh, there have been some brave journalists um, uh, at, the, at the New York Times and, and elsewhere who have gone to battlefields um, after the United States has used its, its drone strikes and, and tried to, to count the number of casualties and, and spoken to locals and, and asked them um, who which who in your family has been killed by, by this recent drone strike. And so, you know, there's no exact amount. The numbers range from in the hundreds to in the thousands. Um, and, uh, and so, it's, so it, it really, we, we couldn't even say how many people, right. how many innocent people we, we've been killed. And then of course, uh, on top of that, um, but it's clear that we've killed a lot. Well, and, uh, just we, politically, we, just just sorry to interrupt, but, but politically, sure. you know, I, I wonder if that ended up slowing down Al Qaeda, you know, and those people, or actually helping them recruit more. Sure, sure. Well, certainly, uh, scholars really really disagree about this. Um, you know, uh, so w- when you attack um, some some senior level terrorist leaders uh you, you that might sound good and again it, it uh it's tempting but what can we do is just um radicalize uh the lower level members who uh are sometimes kept in line uh by their uh more senior levels and, and, and an example of this is something that you saw which is that al-qaeda which, which once seemed like the most radical group in the world um found themselves out radicalized by ISIS. Yes. And so it's always possible uh, to to create a vacuum that is filled by an even worse adversary. Yeah. And um, and so some political scientists really argue that um, these drone strikes do more harm than good because it just scatters the groups, uh, making them harder to uh, to control and um, basically uh, just encourages them to uh, try and attack the United States uh, and its allies uh, however it can, um, rather than, you know, maybe trying to be more strategic uh, about their things. And, of course, it's harder for our intelligence officials to be able to track uh, decentralized, scattered groups. Uh, if you can imagine, sort of, it's like a pack of ants. You can keep your eye on them uh, if they're in a little pack, but it, but if you slam if you slam your fist down and they all disperse, you're going to take your eye, your eye off some of them. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, well, thinking with history and learning from history, what a concept. You put the, the 20 years after 9-11 into four phases. The first two, we've talked about somewhat, hegemony and internationalism. You call phase three, that taken by Trump, Jacksonian. How is Trump's mainstreaming Islamophobia Jacksonian? Sure. Well, the, uh, the political scientist Walter Russell Mead identified various uh, traditions in American foreign policy. And one of them he called Jacksonian, named, of course, after President right. Andrew Jackson. And President Andrew Jackson um, w- was sort of a populist, uh, but, <laughs> but not just an, an economic populist. He was very much uh, concerned with 
with uh, with keeping white people safe from its, its so-called enemies, uh, particularly among America's indigenous population. And, uh, and he was brutal in dealing with them. His nickname was the Indian Killer, and uh, he wore it with pride. And, and Trump is very much in that, in that mold. And so um, in, in foreign policy, Jacksonians sort of uh, imagine that people outside the United States are all uh, savages. Or, uh, or or ripping us off, or or worse, and uh, the United and, and Donald Trump really sort of um, treated uh, immigrants and Muslims that way, and he, he sort of um, you know built on this tradition that that goes back to Andrew Jackson of imagining that that people who uh, that people who aren't white are, are basically savages right. trying to destroy what is good in the United States. And um, and certainly he, uh, Donald Trump, you know, painted pretty much the entire world except for Russia as as trying to rip us off or uh, or steal from us or attack us. Um, And uh, and so he really sort of made everybody who wasn't a white Christian the enemy. Right. And uh, and and he he really sort of um, brought to the surface a level of Islamophobia that had coursed through the United States uh, ever since 9-11. And he really mainstreamed it, and now yes. it really is, um, you know, it, it's almost a doctrine in the Republican Party that Muslims are the enemy of, of the United States, even as, uh, as millions of Americans are Muslims. And, uh, and that's something that I actually think is probably his biggest legacy, is really um, solidifying this bigotry in the United States. Yeah, it certainly did, and and I believe actually Trump had a uh, a picture of uh, President Andrew Jackson up on the uh, office wall in the Oval Office, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. And certainly one of the results of Trump's overt racism is the increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans. You write, it's extremely difficult to compete with China opposing its human rights violations and authoritarianism while simultaneously countering homegrown xenophobia, McCarthyism, and racism, end of quote. Uh, It's hard to criticize the other guys when you're doing exactly that. Now comes President Biden. You call this phase four moderate internationalism. China is pictured as the major security challenge for the U.S., not the Middle East anymore. You write that Biden is convinced that China has, quote, an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, displacing the United States, end of quote. Can we not compete with them economically and not define the situation as requiring another military solution? Sure. Well, I think um, the United States could certainly, in theory, and should compete with China um, at an economic level. Right. Um, w- without turning it into basically a second Cold War, w- which involves a, a massive military uh, buildup, and and maybe the United States will be allying with uh, repressive governments uh, in Asia and elsewhere, supporting them, maybe um, uh, engaging in covert action, overthrowing governments. Um, and uh, the United States doesn't really have to do those things, but uh, it sort of uh, gets itself into these traps and, uh, and, and d- decides to go this way. And so it, it's extremely difficult. It's going to be extremely difficult to compete with China uh, without turning it in, without overblowing the threat, 
without without turning uh, China into basically another Soviet Union or, or Nazi Germany, uh, where Americans must must be hiding under their uh, yeah. worried about Chinese hiding under their beds and and uh, engaging in hate crimes against uh, Ch- Chinese Americans who are disloyal, yeah. this sort of thing. Yeah, and Trumpists scoff at international opinion of the U.S. of being of any value is no concern. Who cares what the world thinks of us? We're the boss. We're the top guys. Our reaction to 9-11 obviously affected our worldwide reputation rather dramatically. So in what ways does a country's image matter from a self-interested perspective? You know, not just having the world love us, uh, but... You know what? What? How is it in our interest to be concerned about a worldwide image, and and how does the overuse of force play into that? Sure. Well, well, just from a, a self-interested perspective, if we want countries to work with us, if we want to help us, then we have to be willing uh, to help them and to look after their interests and to be mindful of their views. And uh, and we, uh, unless we, if we don't do that, when we just ignore them. Um, we, we turn them into uh, neutral countries or even adversaries, and then they want to harm us or, or, or at least um, stop us from doing what we want to do. We're basically creating uh, more enemies for ourselves, more adversaries. And, um, you know, if we're, if we're more solicitous of other countries and their views, other peoples, then we have more partners. We have people we can work with. We have more options. Uh, we, we, we can get some of them to do the lifting. We can have them um, do some of the work instead of trying to do it all ourselves. Um, and and so even from a self-interest perspective um you know trying to uh bully the entire world all it does is convince the rest of the world that they need to work together to defeat us <laughs> you know if there's one thing that, that history shows it's that uh countries will balance against uh an overbearing country and um and when you're when you really sort of uh, alienate your allies you're just isolating yourself and, and encouraging all these other countries to work against you and uh the united states is is powerful a very powerful country but it's sure. not infinitely powerful <laughs> powerful sometimes and it's not yeah, some, yeah sometimes we we think we are we believe it and you know, I care very much about freedom of, of the press and the ability to dissent. And I forget who it was that said called dissent uh, the highest form of patriotism. Of course, no one who was around in 2003 could forget the amazing lockstep drumbeat in the mainstream media for attacking Iraq as somehow part of the worldwide war on terror. Your thoughts on the extraordinary role of the media on crushing dissent. Have any lessons been learned from that, do you think? Um, I, I think that there have been some lessons learned. I mean, the United States uh, press didn't, by and large, uh, did a very poor job in 2001, the late 2001, 2002, 2003, in, uh, in being skeptical of the Bush administration's plans in the Middle East and elsewhere. And, um, and I mean, uh, people who are in favor of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq we're giving much more attention than when we're the skeptics, uh, even though the latter have certainly been proven right. I think, unfortunately, what we've seen with the, with, the, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's the same thing over again. We hear 
uh, so many people, uh, are sometimes the same people who were wrong in 2003 are given uh, prominent media platforms. Uh, you know, for example, Paul Wolfowitz, yeah. who was an architect of the Iraq war um, in, the, in the Pentagon, uh, was in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, last week, talking about how the withdrawal w- would be disastrous, and um, and, and so uh, the press still gives over the microphone uh, far too often to people um, who are are always in favor of force. On the other hand, I do think that uh, when people have more time to think, there would be uh, there would be more skeptics of a rush to war again. It's one thing to withdraw from uh, a place, it's another thing to launch another war. And so I think the press has certainly learned uh, from some of its failures. Uh, and, and these were, mm. uh, you know, these, these failures were at local uh, media outlets, at state level and at national level, uh, some of the most prestigious publications uh, in the world. And uh, really, really performed very poorly. And so uh, hope you'd like to think that uh, people have have learned some things. One would hope so. But as people are tired of hearing me say for sure, that one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. (laughs) With, with, With the Taliban now governing Afghanistan, as you point out, trying to befriend adversaries is an important tool of statecraft that often gets overlooked. The U.S. and the Taliban share a common enemy in ISIS. Would this be a good idea? Is it realistic now to think that maybe we can work with each other? I mean, it wasn't the Taliban that attacked 9-11. They allegedly, you know, gave uh, uh, Osama bin Laden and, and the others a place, a base from which to work, as Florida was too. But uh, they... It, they are a state now, a, a state actor. And I wonder how possible it may be to, to work with each other or do you, I mean, I wonder how realistic that may be. And I, I would think it was, you know, a reasonably good thing to do to fight uh, ISIS. Your thoughts, prospects? I think, I think there's no good reason why from a strategic perspective, the United States and the Taliban cannot work together to counter jihadists. Uh, in uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, We do share a common enemy. There may be political problems uh, for uh, people in Congress and uh, in the Democratic and Republican Party, but uh, who who try and advocate some some sort of uh, alliance or if not alliance, you know, just basically information sharing and um, or, or some sharing of resources. Uh, but that's no reason the rest of us should go along with it. I mean, um, the, the Taliban is not going away. Clearly, we fought them for 20 years and they won. Yeah. They're not going anywhere. Uh, so it, it's better to be realistic about that. And and to, uh, you know, they're the ones on the ground. They're the ones who know uh, the local players far right. better than we do. Right. And so, um, you know, we can listen to them, learn from them and work with them uh, for our own benefit if we're just if we're just open minded about it. Well, we do have a new president with it seems like a, a, a better understanding of, of realities here. And, you know, he's been in, in government for so long. He's he's learned a couple of things uh, and pursuing global dominance since World War II has proved futile. You write that a cataclysmic event like 9-11 temporarily removes the safeguards of public opinion 
And as you say, the over-reliance on force was ingrained in Washington long before 9-11. Do you see signs that the public has grown weary of this approach? And is there reason to think that the Biden foreign policy may have learned this lesson? Yes, I do. And, and this is one of the few, the few uh, hopeful things of the, of the, 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 one of the few hopeful developments of the past 20 years. Uh, you know, there's a real split between the, the foreign policy establishment right. and the American public. And the foreign policy establishment um, is, is somewhat divided, but still largely favors a massive military uh, and the United States trying to uh, remain predominant in the world. Uh, the American public is very wary of that now. Uh, the, the failures of the Iraq war and now in Afghanistan are very apparent. And, um, you know, Americans uh, don't really like having service members die in futile wars. They're the ones who fight these wars. And so, um, you know, when people in Washington are imagining that they can just send over American troops, uh, well, well, the families of these service members are not so keen on fighting these wars. And neither are, are their communities. And, um, and so there's a real... Uh, a, a really powerful current in the American public that is skeptical of any sort of internet intervention abroad that involves the deployment of American troops. Um, and and uh, it's really unfortunate that uh, the United States had to, had to fight uh, some futile wars to, to really bring that sort of current to the forefront. But now that it's there, I don't think the Democratic Party and, and President Trump did almost everything wrong, but one thing he got right was he didn't send American troops into battle. Uh, and, you know, uh, unlike President Obama uh, and, uh, and of course, the Bush administration. And so this is a hopeful development. I don't think, um, absent another attack, I should say, the United mm, States mm-hmm. is likely to send uh, certainly large numbers of American troops into other countries. But, of course, um, you know, if there's another attack, um, all bets are off. <laughs> well, let's let's hope not, and perhaps we've learned. Perhaps we've learned. Uh, if people are interested in uh, hearing, I really appreciate your uh, research into this and, and very good article in the New Republic. I assume if people want to read more of your stuff, Jordan Michael Smith, New Republic is the way to go. Thanks very much for being with us today, and uh, let's see if we are any smarter. Maybe there is some reason for optimism. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Bert.
somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. 